they're, they're using it as the, well, it's this guy's fault. It's not my fault. You know, I looked at the data. I used the constraints. This guy should have figured it out. We gave him the, uh, the, the external queuing where it's like, no, this is all just excuses as to why you put a bad plan in place. All right, this is More Than Velocity. I'm Bart Pear here with Ryan Croton and Jordan Oseguera. And today we're going to talk about coaching. Both Ryan and Jordan have had have done coaching in lots of different aspects, but more importantly, they've also been around a lot of different coaching in a lot of different aspects and seen what works and what doesn't. And today we're going to talk about their take on that over their years of experience. What makes a good coach? What, um, what are some bad traits? And uh, you know what? I'm going to let Jordan kick off this one. Um, just just start with your experience and you as a coach and what you've learned. Well, I've been really lucky to have some really good coaches in my time. Uh, and what I've noticed is the coaches that are the most impactful are the ones that care about you more than they care about their notoriety. Uh, it's about your progress. It's not about them being right. Uh, they're willing to admit when they're wrong. And they're willing to put things in place that really prioritize the player. And that's what coaching is, is it's, it's the act of selflessness. It's about placing your needs below the needs of what the team or the player is going to need. Um, you know, to give a little background is, you know, the first major coach that I had in my life uh, was, you know, when I was a little, little league playing travel ball. His name was Troy Davis, and he had a brother, Kelly Davis. They both played at the University of Utah. Um fantastic people, fantastic human beings. And the way we got connected with them, they ran a business next to my parents' business. And, you know, his kid played baseball. They started a travel team just to make sure their kid had a good, good atmosphere. And that was kind of my first intro to, to seeing, you know, selflessness when it came to coaching. Um, from that in between there, you have some good coaches and bad coaches, but then I was able to play in high school under a guy named Steve Cramblett, um, military background, I believe he was in the Army, but he's an ABCA Hall of Fame coach. Uh, fantastic guy again. And then, you know, when he left, he had some health issues. Uh, but from there, I was able to have some other coaches, some good, some bad. Um, then I had some really bad coaches in other areas. But then I was able to play under another ABCA Hall of Fame coach. His name was Skip Walker at College of Southern Idaho. And he was, a fa again, great guy. I had him as well as his son. Uh, but, you know, Skip Walker was a huge impact. I've never met anyone who has bad stories to say about Skip Walker. But, again, it was because he put things in the context of how do we benefit you, the player. Even if you're me, who's not going to impact the team at the end of the day, he made sure that I was getting what I needed to done on a regular basis. And then I was really lucky to, you know, mentor. They have awards uh, named after the guy, the Tom House, you know, Pitching Coach of the Year Award. And, you know, Bart, you've been able to meet him, and you just see the way he can take humor and take a tense situation and turn it into a something where like, hey, now we're all on the same page. And he's a guy who can read the room. I've Absolutely. met very few players that disliked working with Tom. And granted, you know, I've I've known him since I was a little kid, but everything's always been, hey, how do we make you improve today? Whether that's from, you know, the coaching standpoint of it when I was working with him, learning how to be a coach, as well as when I was a player, how do we make you a better player today? Um, so it's those guys that look at things and, you know, I won't use the name who said it about Tom, but what was most impactful is they said, you'll be walking down the street, you'll see a dog turd on the sidewalk and you'll try to find a way to make that dog turd a better dog turd. 
You know, so it's just those guys want to help people. They want to make them better, even if they're dog turds at the end of the day. Um, and for me, that's one of the most impactful things that you can see from a coach. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, Tom impressed me. He just seemed, I mean, he's in his 70s, and he's still very long-term focused. Like, he's thinking about the next 10, the impact next 10, 15 years. He's not thinking about the impact next, you know, the next month or season or whatever. It's pretty impressive. Um in terms of my experience, you know, and for many of us, our first coaching experience usually comes from a parent. Uh, and unfortunately, both my mother and my father had no ability in baseball. My mom can hit a little bit. She, she would play with us in the, in the father-son games. She would actually be my, <laughs> my, my teammate. Um, she can hit a little bit, but, you know, there was no real playing catch that much in my house. So my when I first started baseball, I was about eight years old and my best friend's father um, was my coach. And, you know, I just saw a lot of characteristics in, in this coach as being, you know, a father figure as well. But he really instilled passion in all of the kids. So, for instance, every time that you came to a practice or a game, you got a pack of baseball cards. He bought baseball cards for all these kids, like packages. And we've Every single game, there's a pack of baseball cards. And, you know, most of the kids would open up these these baseball cards for the gum. You know, they want to chew that stale piece of cruddy gum that, that comes in these packages. But I would look at these cards. And I remember the first package he gave me, I looked at these cards and I saw all these players. And, you know, I didn't really understand it, you know, the, what the backs meant and uh, the stats and I remember going up to him and I said, you know, do these guys, is this their job? Is, do they play baseball um, for their job? And he said to me, yes. And he said, you can do it too, you know, and, and just real quick, like it was, it was just a very quick exchange, but I felt so much um, confidence and I started to have, you know, this idea of wanting to be a major league baseball player from a very young age. And I remember coming home and showing my mom the cards and, you know, my mom wanted, she wanted me to be a doctor from the time I was born. You know, most of the, the family members that we have in my family, they're in the medical field. And so my mom jokes about it. And she's like, like, couldn't there have been a team orthopedic surgeon in the pack, you know, but this, this particular man um, just really believed in me. And uh, I carry an award um, that he gave me, I got the most improved player is in 1987. And I'm not going to really give my age, but a long time ago. And uh, it goes with me wherever I go, because it was a symbol to me that, uh, you know, someone believed in me, someone thought that I, you know, was good enough and that I, um, you know, have abilities to succeed and, and to see that potential. And I think when you deal with any of your athletes, I think it's important to build them up as much as possible. You know, there's some coaches, like I had a college coach. Um, he's still in the game. I can't believe it. Um, but his whole method was let's try to tear down players. Let's try to keep make them on edge. You know, his whole, I think his whole psychology of coaching was, can I, can I get them to band together with fear? You know, and, and for me, like my my experience, I wasn't a hockey player and I'm Canadian and, and most hockey players, their coaches are really rough, you know, on, on the kids. And, and I wasn't used to that. You know, my coaching background came from this love 
you know, you're going to be great. I believe in you. You can do everything you, you want to set out for in the game. You just got to work hard enough to now this other juxtaposed, juxtaposed coach who I remember hitting in the batting cage. He was talking about my parents, you know, how weak they were as parents and, you know, using some, some figurative language, but, um, you know, to produce a son that can't get through seven pitches and perform all the rounds appropriately. Like I, I think I popped a couple up in the top of the, the, um, the cage that was over top of me, the big boy, but it was just so night and day that it was shocking for me to, to experience that. And I think, you know, for a good coach, um, you, you have to read the player. Um, but I always say, you know, the, the impression I got from the time I was seven years old from this coach, from this man is that, you know, allow that player to see that you believe in them, that you see their potential, you know, constantly. And, and the other thing that he would do in his coaching point, he would, it was great. Like he would sandwich the communication, which I think is important for coaches. And a lot of coaches don't do this. Like start with the good, then give the negative, the improvement, and then end with a positive. He would always sandwich the communication so that you, you always went in, you, you got the positive reinforcement, you knew what you needed to change and you felt good afterwards. You didn't feel like you were failing at something. You know, and it was a learning process. So, that, you know, that was my experience, early experience from from this guy that um, I still talk to today. Um, and, and it's led me to my own coaching vision um, from that moment. Well, I think that's a that's very individual, too, with the way you want to communicate to the players, because, you know, if, if you're if you're managing a roster, there's some people that, you know, you're talking about the sandwich method. You know, some guys need that where other guys just need you to tell them straightforward. Hey, this is bad. We need to improve this. And that's what they need to hear. So a lot of that's individual as well. Um, you know, and that's that's where it comes to like there's this term in baseball. Everyone uses, oh, you got to have feel. You got to have feel. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you'll get some feel. You'll get some feel. But the guys who talk about feel have the least amount of it has been my my experience and you know we had a we had a, one of the guys uh just because he's still employed with some of the teams is you know we had this we had a conversation he goes all these coaches keep talking about feel and how the players need to have feel and every other coach needs feel he goes these guys have no feel because they keep coming in and asking me to do stuff and i don't have time to do it he's like feel out the situation because i'm way more busy than any of you guys and you keep asking me to do things you should be doing um so feel is this term that everyone likes to throw around, uh, but you need to you need to have that personal relationship with the players, and that's what really good coaches do, is they get to know you first, before they start saying, hey, here's your compliment sandwich or your criticism, whatever you want to call that thing. I don't know, or you know, there's guys that you know I still work with that I've known for seven eight years that, hey, dude, your slider sucks. What's the deal? And that's the way you get through to those guys. And then there's other guys that go, hey, I noticed. You're regressing here a little bit. Here's my thought. What do you you want to get going? And you got to be a little more calm with them, a little more kind. But you you once you know the the person and you learn how that guy responds to things, that's when you can really make those break breakthroughs. And just like you know me and you, Ryan, like you know with me, me and you personally can be really honest with each other to where you know we'll get in arguments, but we don't hurt each other's feelings. And that's that's important because we have that trust. We know each other. We've been to dinner together. We've we've worked out together. 
you know, and even in the pro, we've showered together, you know, like there's a lot of things that have happened that we've done together that it's like, you know, we, we have a very good friendship, a good bond to where we know it's not a personal attack. Um, but there's other guys that we don't know as well that, you know, once we first got to know Bart, you know, we got to kind of understand like where, where, what kind of humor is he going to react to? Can I be really sarcastic with Bart or do I need to be more straightforward with him? Um, so, you know, you, you learn the learner and you, and you understand how they respond to that feedback best. Um, you know, you have a couple kids, Ryan, your mm-hmm. oldest kid is going to respond differently than your youngest kid to a specific way. And that's what really good coaches do is they understand how that person digests information and they try to make it work for them. And there's going to be times where, you know what, the, the nice way to approach things isn't going to work. You have to be stern. You have to be a little more aggressive. But then there's also times that being stern and aggressive only creates a bigger divide, and that doesn't work. And, you know, I don't know who this coach was, Wink, that you're talking about, um, but when it comes down to it, those guys are good every one to six years. You know, they're not good every single stinking year, in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. It's those that can communicate at the individual level that are good every single year. And that's why there's some universities you see, man, those guys, that was coach of the year, and 2016 but they haven't even been to the postseason in five years six years seven years eight years what's the deal he's a crappy communicator that's what the deal is he's not taking responsibility on that on himself he's passing that buck on to the players saying well your parents are a disgrace that's why you suck well no <laughs> like that's a strange way to communicate that you want this guy to train a little harder <laughs> you know so it's that might work for five percent of the players out there but you need to find what works for each individual and communicate that appropriately. And there's not a one-size-fits-all form of communication. You know, and it, that changes year to year when it comes to talking with groups. And, you know, I've had a really good opportunity, like I said, to work under some guys that are really good. And I had a guy who actually worked in a SEAL platoon. He was one of the, the, the first groups of Navy SEALs. And the amount of communication skills that I learned from him is something that I'll take with me for the rest of my life because it's 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 life or death in those scenarios where when you're working with a player, you it's not life or death that someone's gonna die, but you're gonna have an impact on that guy, positive or negative. And if you're you know, I'm gonna break this guy down because I'm gonna get what I want out of it, you know, that's not that's not a long term focus. That's a very short term, I'm gonna win once every six years, as opposed to I'm gonna win every single day. I think it's it's interesting, like you, when you talked about you know my kids and my my mind went to a conversation that I had with my wife recently, and I made the card I make the cardinal sin sometimes with my kids, and my wife reminds me. So the the word that coaches should never use, and I don't think parents should use it either, is the word don't. You know, like with my son Cameron, don't put that in your mouth. Or Casey put some, don't put that on the table. You know, it, it became instinctive for me with my kids that I never used with athletes. I never wanted to lead them into thinking what they shouldn't be doing rather than communicating what they should. So it, it, the the word choice is pretty powerful. I mean, I always think about that with coaches is, you know, talking even in pro ball, it's tough because you're constantly looking for problems in players as a coach. What can't they do? What are they not good at? You know, what is their deficiencies? What do I have to work on? Um, and I, I always see, you know, sometimes coaches get frustrated 
and they say, you know, this guy, this guy can't do, he can't do it. He can't, can't make the adjustment, you know? And I always think like, are they using language that isn't working? You know, cause I, I feel like if you're not seeing an effective improvement with your athlete, when you notice that they need to make a change, you need to kind of sit back and think about how am I talking to them? What words am I using? What mental models am I using? Am I, am I giving them enough drills so that they can feel what I'm talking about without me having to speak so much? And I just feel too that coaches can sometimes throw in the towel on an athlete um, where that the really great coach, they take a moment, they process and say, okay, I need to pivot. You know, um, this brings me into another topic of conversation Jordan and I get into all the time. You know, what, what's the definition of a good coach, at least at the pro level? You know, the, the definition of a good coach at the pro level, they have to have a sense of urgency. The, the best coaches in the game, they te- take the least amount of time to make a positive change. And I remember us in, in professional baseball, we couldn't define it. You know, some coaches said, oh, no, this could take a year for the player to be able to make this particular adjustment in their movement pattern um, or to be able to hone this particular pitch. And, and for me, and I, I'm sure Jordan agrees, that's not good enough. You know, um, that's a player's career. Like if you're going to take a year to wait on a player to see if they actually get a concept that can help them promote themselves in the sport, you're doing the player a disservice. You know, we all as coaches need to have a sense of urgency. If you're a private coach, hey, they're paying you, you know, they're paying you just like an organization's paying you. You know, you need to get the most and the best out of that athlete as soon as possible. You know, so you have to be able to have in your mind an opportunity to pivot. You have to talk to that athlete about that, too. And I don't think a lot of coaches do because they sometimes lack that humility to say, you know, I was wrong. You know, I, I wanted you to change, you know, your, your stride angle and, and I was wrong. It, it really affected your pitch qualities. And, you know, we need to get you back there and we need to do some other things to enhance that. And and coaches just have to have the ability to be um, able to be a resource, you know, rather than a domineering voice, you know, and, and that happens in pro ball. Nobody calls you coach in pro, pro ball, coach Croton college. That's a college thing. They call you coach. In, in pro ball, they call you by your name or your nickname, and you are there as a consultant to their performance. And you have to be able to, as a consultant, give them advice, and you have to be able to let them know that not always you're going to get it right, but you're going to work around until you find the right pathway for them uh, to experience success. So, and you guys don't have to name names, let's talk about some some bad. Let's talk about the, the ugly. We talked a little about the good. Let's talk about the bad and the ugly you guys have seen. I'm sure there's some horror stories out there. Just, just to kind of piggyback on something Ryan said about, you know, there, there was instances where a coach has said, you know, this could take 12 months, 18 months, t- two years before we see a, a result in this player. Well, that's not development. That's just called letting time run its course in the sense. Development, it's like if you go, go to the, the auto mechanic to get your tire fixed or to rotate your tires or something's wrong with your engine. And they say, yeah, this could take up to 24 months to get your car back to optimal performance. Who's paying that guy? I'm not paying money for that. Nobody's paying money for that. Like if that's the business model, 
that that doesn't work in the in the real world. It only works in I don't know where that works actually. Um, but you know that's just one of those things where you're putting the blame on the player as opposed to going, hey, you know what? I made a decision that wasn't right. We need to pivot. We need to change what's going on here. Um, that's how you become just how you become better is you need to understand what you did well, what you did did poorly, and how do you limit those? How do you how do you learn what not to do? Is the big thing. Everyone thinks they know what to do, when in reality, I don't think it's as big of a window as we think it is. Um, but you know, that's one of the things I've seen on the bad end is, you know, guys saying that it's, it should take this amount of time to make this change, and it's more what I've noticed is it's because people are going, I don't know exactly what to do. I'm just giving things. I'm just giving advice to give advice and hoping for the best. I'm going to throw a whole bunch of stuff on the wall. We're going to see what sticks. Maybe everything falls off and this player's career is ruined. Or maybe he gets a surgery. Or maybe he ends up getting the yips and we put so much on this guy's plate that now he can't perform. And they're, they're just using it as, the, well, it's this guy's fault. It's not my fault. You know, I looked at the data. I used the constraints. This guy should have figured it out. We gave him the uh, the, the external cueing. Where it's like, no, this is all just excuses as to why you put a bad plan in place. You know, there's no other industry that is okay with, like, what is the percentage? You know, we, we're putting out these, we're doing the research on the draft. What is the percentage of players that are getting to the big leagues, Ryan? Yeah, so it really starts to fall after the first round. So in 2005 to 2015 that we analyzed, only 71% of first rounders made the major leagues. I think it was like 52% of second rounders, and then it really starts to drop down. So, you know, so those two, two Let's just say rounds. everything stays the same. Two draft picks out of your 20, because now it's 20 draft picks, makes it to the major leagues. Where is that a successful business? If two out of 20, if you, two out of 20 you pe- people you talk to with crossover wanted to use crossover, that's not successful. You know, like you need a higher turnover rate than that. And too often, you know, most of the bad coaches are going, ah, it's the player's fault. Couldn't mentally handle it. He was soft. His parents raised him wrong. (laughs) You know, it's like if if it's uh, the parents that are raising him, he's spending 16 hours a day with you. So how are his parents factoring into this? You know what I mean? We're getting these guys when they're 16, when they're impressionable. Maybe it's not the parents' fault as to why this kid couldn't handle the stresses of professional baseball. Maybe we need to take a little more ownership on this. Ah, he just wasn't willing to put in the work. Now, he wasn't willing to put in the work you asked him to do because it was communicated poorly. So it's, you know, everyone's wanting to get to the big leagues. There's not a player in the in professional baseball that you ask that says, I don't care about doing that. There's not a coach you talk to that doesn't want to help. But when it comes down to it, there's the the the, the ownership and the responsibility of saying, I will take accountability for the plan that I put in place. And... You know, one of the things I loved with me personally is the assistant GM and the general manager. When they would send me a guy to work with in Arizona, hey, we're signing this free agent. He just got released by this team. What do you want to do with him? Well, this is what I'd like to improve. And the next question, how long is that going to take? And they would put time constraints on me. Hey, if it's going to take six weeks, we don't have time for that. We need to win today. This better get done in two weeks. Okay, sounds good. Let's make this happen quicker. And it really forces you to start pivoting and adjusting and finding what's going to work as quickly as you can. I mean, getting on on 
you know, the bad traits, at least in my particular avenue, I, I would, you know, sometimes sit in on uh, the training room. You know, my, my position was really interesting in baseball as the director of performance integration. I was kind of in the middle of everything and able to be on the field of coaches, be in the weight room, obviously, of strength coaches that I directed um, most, most often and um, working with the clinical staff. And I remember one particular clinician talking to an athlete who, you know, would go to the weight room. He's very body conscious. You know, things have to feel right, you know. And I remember him um, communicating to him that he was tight. You know, he would just say, oh, man, you're really tight. You're really tight in your shoulder. Um, you know, you, you need to get a little bit more upward rotation of your shoulder, your shoulder blade. And that communication like triggered this athlete into basically overstretching himself into greater injury risk, you know, like perennial arm injuries. Um, and you could tell like he was, he was always fidgeting. He would never leave the weight room because he was constantly working on something that we had told him isn't functioning right, you know, without looking at performance, but we're, we're always, we were, you know, on the health side of this athlete, um, where our communication, like having, not understanding the athlete, um, is, is, is not a good thing. Um, we, we definitely need to be able to do that. I think a good coach relates. Well, I've had the fortune opportunity to work for three major league managers, all brilliant, very brilliant. Um, you want to talk about a PhD in baseball. It's like beyond that. That's like an emeritus PhD in baseball, all brilliant baseball minds but only one, and they were all roughly, you know, in the same age and only one really could relate to the athletes, stayed relevant, understood their music, you know, calls them on Christmas and Thanksgiving, you know, the, the coaches, the, the coaches, the managers, the, the people that are out there that cut off the tie with the athlete after the season, to me, that's a bad coach. You know, quite honestly, it shows me that you don't care enough about your your players as people and you worry more about what they can do for you and your win and loss record. And that doesn't sit well with me. You know, even though I'm no longer with the Angels, I, I constantly text back and forth with players. Even my experience with other major league teams, I stay stay in communication with those guys, you know, and, and, and why? Because they made a great impression on my life and, uh, you know, it they feel like an extension of family at times. You want to see them do well, even though, you know, they play for other teams. I want to see them be successful because I work so hard with them and they work so hard with me. Um, and the, and the relationship was very real. And I think coaches, um, they, they remove themselves from the human aspect that that makes a bad coach. In my opinion is when you, you don't, you don't treat your athletes and it happens sometimes at the pro level as people, you're looking them as numerical values, you know, what, you know, and as far as sports science, you know, you, some sports scientists, they don't even get to know their players at all. They're locked in a room with a computer and they're looking at red and green values that they may have coded in their, uh, in their programs to be able to detect when an athlete is in or in or out of a range. They don't even know the player, you know, and, uh, and that's not a good, that's not a good recipe for success. So, so that's kind of, in my opinion, one of the number one things is, you know, treat them as people. Um, 
know them, know that what you could say could either build them up or could damage them. Um, and, and coaches that don't do that have a problem. You know, there's a guy in the industry, his name is Brett Bartholomew. I don't know if any of you guys have heard of this guy, but he makes a living on coaching relationships, leadership relationships, and how to interact with, with players. He's written a book called Coaches, uh, Conscious Coaching. I recommend coaches to read it. Um, but it all talks about how to get the essential information out of a player and how to create buy-in. And, uh, and, and that's what you need to do. You have to build trust and you have to show them you care. Yeah, on that, you know, I've had, man, especially when I was coaching in college, people would say, well, how do you, how do you know if you had a good – one of the questions I had in some interviews, how do you know if you had a successful season? How do you how do you judge you know success and failure? And it probably cost me a lot of jobs. Obviously, got me over here with arm care at some point. Was saying you don't know if you had success or failure till fifteen or twenty years down the road. And I you know well, what does that mean? Is it if you're getting invited to weddings, if you're getting in, if you're getting informed when someone has a loss in their family, or you're 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 being told about their kids being born, and you've made that relationship not just on an athletic sense. But on a personal sense, that's how you know you're getting you're you're getting buy-in, you're getting trust, and that's what coaching is. Is you know a lot of people think coaching is this you know militaristic. I'm going to yell at you, and you're going to do what I tell you to do because I'm the coach and I know what's best. That's not what it is. Is you're is you're building a culture, you're building an organization, you're building a team that doesn't just have success on the field but off the field, and that's what a good coach does. Is he can look you in the eye. He can be honest enough in a sense. He can be harsh enough when he needs to, but he can be kind enough when he needs to as well, knowing where that player is on that day. And to go back to earlier is, you know, there's days that Ryan needs a little more of the, you know, bring him along because maybe he's had a rough day. We don't know. Maybe he got an argument, you know, road rage, you know, uh, hey, I'm sorry about that going on in Canada. Someone cut him off because they're driving on the wrong side of the road or whatever's going on. You know, Arizona, wrong way drivers, they warn you about that stuff. That could be the tipping point for him to where you can't be harsh with him that day. You got to read the situation, understand your player's body language, know where they're at and meet them where they're at on the day. And that's how you get that buy-in. And, you know, that's one of the great things I learned from Brett Bartholomew is we were able to have a, have a conversation with him and talk with him. And he put us in this, uh, you know, atmosphere where I'm supposed to be explaining, like, I forget what it was to one of our strength coaches. But a television. He, a, television. a television. That's right. A television yeah, to you were, our, you were our from strength prehistoric. coach. One guy well, was I was from future. modern day. He was from prehistoric. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things was like, I was saying, yeah, you know, you can see this and see this and see this. And the guy was going like, don't understand that. So you had to find different words to, to explain the same thing. And that's what most people don't understand is like, you know, I've seen it so many times in pro ball where someone comes over to, to a player who doesn't speak English. They go, hey, PFP at 710. Huh? And they just say it louder. It's like he doesn't speak, doesn't speak the language. Saying it louder is just making him more confused on what's going on. Like it, It's not the same language. You need to find a different way to get him to understand this. And that's what's great about it. It's like, yeah, you might only have three drills, but you need a thousand ways to teach those three drills. And... You know, we can get into internal cueing, external cueing, and all this stuff is great. But unless you can communicate that 
you're not going to get a player to care if it's an internal or external cue. And for me right now, there's a lot of coaching out there that's focusing on the theory of coaching, but not the actual practical application of communication of coaching. So let's flip this around. If I'm a parent or a player, high school, and I'm looking at colleges or or even travel ball teams or whatever, how am I trying to identify the good coaches? Is there a culture I'm looking for? Is there, I mean, what am I doing to make oh, sure? Oh man, this, this, this is right up my alley. I don't mean to cut you off, Bart, but you know, the most important thing the the persona that some coaches may put on in front of the parent could be much different in front of the athlete when they're not there. And I think what's essential for young athletes when they're deciding upon a school and a coach is to actually see if they can communicate with a player. So sometimes in the recruiting visit, you know, they get an opportunity to be around players and, and they get to communicate, you know, and, and they need to understand and ask quite candidly, you know, what's, what's this coach like, you know, is he, is he really tough to uh, communicate with? Does he, does he keep his door open? You know, um, how does he treat freshmen? Um, how does he treat a redshirt player? Ask how you want to know the a... best way to get that question answered. Go look at the stats. Find out who has the least amount of playing time. Yeah. Message him on Instagram. Yeah. Find out exactly. what their thoughts. That's what I was saying. Like, how, how do you how do you go treat to the guy a... who doesn't get played or who has the worst numbers? He's got three thousand ERA in you know one third of an inning. The guy who's got the crustiest look on his face in the team photo. Go find that guy and see what he has to say about the coach and then find out what the other guy has to say who's got the most innings. Somewhere in the middle there is going to be the truth. Yeah, I, I tell you. I mean, I was so fortunate on my on my recruiting visit, and, and I'll name the guy. He's amazing. Uh, his name's Greg Hamilton. He's the director of Baseball Canada. Uh, I still talk to him this day. Um, he he recruited me and he came to my house you know my mom uh invited him and he was in our home talking about the school um where i attended he was a pitching coach and i just thought it was amazing the way he he talked about his outlook and how he coaches you know and the things he would see in me as a player they weren't sure if i was going to be an outfielder or an infielder but they knew i could hit um and uh you know he was just he was just big on having a great experience in college, you know, and, and he said to he said to my family and, and myself that it's important for him as a coach, because here I am, I'm in Canada, I'm going all the way north to the University of Maine, um, where, you know, I don't know anybody at all. Um, and uh, it's in the U.S., which is great to play baseball and there's scholarship money coming. But he just sat down and he said, I, I want your son to have the best of everything. And Jordan's talked about it before and having three things is, you know, the right social atmosphere, the right athletic development, the right academic climate. And he had just said, I want to make sure that your son has all of those things. And I will, I will put myself on the line for that to enjoy it. And uh, he came there and, and, you know, within two weeks, he had to pull me in his office. He's like, Hey man, I'm, I'm really sorry. Uh, <laughs> I just have been named the uh, director of Baseball Canada and I have to take the job. And it was it was hard for me because, you know, there again, you, you felt that connection. I went back to this coach that I've been talking to you when I was seven, eight years old 
that really believed in me, really excited. And that's just me as an athlete. That's what I needed. I felt, I felt on some form love, um, uh, from this guy and he's just, yeah. Awesome. All right. What do you, what are your take, Jordan? What would you be telling? I mean, I, I love the idea of, of reaching out, um, on Instagram to the players. I think, uh, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, any other tells, any other things you'd be looking for? Man, I think the best way to get information is just do what you can to get inside sources, you know, and the, the one of the most important things that you're never as good as you think you are, but you're never as bad as the media says as well. So like I said, somewhere in the middle is where that's going to land. So one of the worst ways I think that you can evaluate a coach is by talking to other coaches because those coaches are always going to project what they think should be happening onto someone else. So that's why it's, you know, if someone called me for a recommendation on someone that I worked with on how they would be, you know, it's, it's never what you think it is. They're never as either. They're never as good of a coach as you think another coach is. And they're never as bad of a coach as you think they are. It's somewhere in the middle because you're projecting a lot of what you see in yourself onto someone else. I would do it different that way or there. They're no, they're no good on this. So a lot of it is, you know, when you evaluate from coaches, especially in a pro atmosphere or especially in a college atmosphere, you're going to run into these clicks of, well, I want that guy's job. So when someone asks me to evaluate them, I'm going to make me sound better than he is because I know what I want, as opposed to just being honest about it and realizing, hey, you know, we're all pulling on the same rope here. We're trying to get going in the same direction. And that's one of the big issues that happens the bigger an organization gets, the more misinformation starts you know, flowing around all over the place. So for me, the best evaluation is the people who are being coached by that coach. You want to you know who you evaluate good mechanics, it's not other mechanics, it's the people who are getting their cars fixed by that mechanic. That's who's writing the reviews. You're going to find out a lot if a guy's a good chef by going and eating his food and then reviewing that food. And it's the same for a coach, you know, you go in there, you can take feedback from other coaches. They might have some great tips, but they're not the litmus test of whether you're a good coach or not. The players are the litmus test for that. I wanted to add uh, one more thing. Just I, I had a really interesting collegiate experience because I was at the Division One level, and then I also played at the Division Two level. And I think too, you know, parents also obviously you're, you're talking about communicating with the players that aren't getting a lot of playing time or the redshirt players see his experience, but it's also great to communicate with the team captain, um, and uh, if if you can have access to that player because they'll give you an insight in terms of the culture of that program um, and and how you know, the, the values that the coach may be instilling on the team through this player. And I remember going to the division two level. Um, it was night and day with my coaches that he was, he was so em, uh, empowering that to the point, like if you're a hitter, there would be a lot of times where he wouldn't put signs on, not trying to control my game, you know, allow me to have freedom with a three and O count to swing. Like he was, he, he wanted that with everybody. He, he felt like, you know, he, he wanted the players to be leaders and his whole thing was like anybody can be a hero. That was the that was the whole mentality of our team and we were in a small middle of nowhere in West Virginia. There was nobody there. His name's Rich Leach. He's he's a, a, just a, a great guy. Uh, his son actually was drafted so he's he's just a you know a great baseball mind and 
um, you know, and, and his whole thing was just anybody could be the hero. That was that was the motto, you know, and and not only do we have confidence, I mean, he his practices, he, he ran the conditioning sessions. They were really hard, you know, but there was there was this uh, overcome these challenges, you know, um, and built such strong character that I would be able to tell. Now, I didn't have that experience as a captain on the team to communicate with with uh, incoming athletes or athletes interested in the team. At that time, nobody really contacted me, but I would have told them, you know, you, you're going to have just a great sense of pride and you are going to feel um, like you've accomplished something because of the challenges that you're placed upon in, in practice. You know, the other things weren't great at a division two level. I'm sure Jordan, you probably have done this, but you know, you're, you're, grooming your own field you know he did a lot of things that you know it's called character know, building yeah yeah, yeah. calluses on your hand are good. yeah yeah you, you never do that at division one level there's always a you know the field crew and you, you know you just you go out there and you're not doing your laundry you know <laughs> ever um but like you know we we're at a small school so there you're right there are a lot of character building experiences so you know as a parent yeah, see, it, see if you can see the two spectrums you know the the the, the captain of the team and you know the guy who's on the red shirt he's not getting a lot of playing time and he's there and like how well is he being coached like if my son doesn't get a chance to play right away is he getting coached really well and you know if my son gets a chance to be that team captain you know what are the values that are being instilled upon this captain to dispel to the team you know because the culture is huge yeah and that's you know you, you get a good good litmus test on that too by talking to the just as many people in a program as you can and you're going to find the commonalities and you know, when I was coaching over at Vanguard, we had a guy, you know, for those of the guys who don't know what Vanguard is, it's pretty much the Ivy League of the West Coast. It's, you know, hands down one of the greatest universities and institutions <laughs> you known to man. I went there, so, like, why wouldn't it be fantastic? Um, but we had an assistant coach who, you know, I learned a ton from him. You know, I was a pitching coach. He handled the outfielders. His name was Ted Brown. He's, he's, he's passed away now. He had a heart attack um, the year we went to the World Series. And it was one of those things that was, it was like a unifying thing. It's weird to say that someone losing someone unified an entire group, but that shows you the impact that one coach can have because that guy was so big on the same thing. You know, who's going to be the hero today? Who's going to be the hero today? And, you know, he was so big on just bringing everyone together in that culture that, yeah, it drove players nuts because he was so big on building that culture that, you know, he would, he, like, I would be, you know, sitting there eating with the pitchers, eating with an, whoever it may, might be in the cafeteria but he'd be grabbing chairs pulling guys together hey you come on you're sitting with your girlfriend that's great come on we're eating we're eating dinner over here together come on and he instilled this family atmosphere at this small school to where that group of guys you know because of what he did to not only let people know like hey you can be the hero today but go out of your way and make sure that that red shirt freshman is eating with you make sure that that you know guy who's only going to pitch when we're down by 10 is eating with you. It's almost like, you know, a lot of the really good NFL quarterbacks, they're the leaders on the team. They're making sure that the backup quarterback knows the plays. They're making sure the backup quarterback understands what's going on because they want to win. Even if it doesn't involve them all the time, they want to win. And that's what good leadership is, is they're making sure the guy below them knows the job. And one thing that Ted Brown did a fantastic job of was he made sure that every player knew the job of the guy ahead of him. And that every single guy ahead of that player was teaching them the job below them. And I learned a ton from him. Obviously, like I said, he's not with us anymore. 
um, but fantastic of just building that culture. And, you know, when you walked onto that campus and you saw what was going on there, you know, Ted Brown paved a lot of that way for those guys to keep that culture and that atmosphere going on still. And, you know, it, you know, I know we're the Ivy League of the West Coast, and they keep pumping out those great results when it comes down to it. You know, one win away from going back to the World Series. You know, it's uh, it, and it's it's all culture building. You know, we we had a first guy debut from the big leagues of that in Jose Rojas and Sean Isaac got the Triple A, Brandon Sandoval Double A. You know, a couple guys pitching in High A and things like that from the five years that we were all there. And it will all comes down to culture. It's not because a Division Two player is more or less capable than a Division One player. It's because of the culture that got built because of the coaches in a leadership role. Yeah, that's you make a great point too. Like parents are like, you know, does my kid go D one? Does he go D two, D three, NAIA, junior college? Hey, for professional baseball, you just have to stand out. You know that that's the key. It doesn't matter where you go, you you have to stand out as a player. You have to perform really well, um, and uh, most of the time you're going to get invited to draft camps when you stand out and you're going to get a very close look um, by the scouts there. I've been to many draft camps and, you know, you're finding kids that are at a division three junior college that are, that are really good athletes. And, and it, it really, it doesn't matter when you see, you know, some of these raw skills um, to get to the next level, you know? Um, and, and I know we talk a lot about sport performance, but the academic side, is really important. You know, these kids, they, they have to do well academically. Uh, as much as we love baseball, you, you cannot play it forever. And, um, you know, the, the parents listening and the players that could be listening to this, you know, you got to make your academics a priority when you go to college, because one day the game's going to end and you have to figure out what to do with your life. And uh, sometimes people don't want to go back to school when they're 29 or 30 years old. You know. Unless you're Ryan, you're still working on your ninth PhD for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love school, but uh, you know it's not for everybody. So you know, get 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 the most you can out of your college experience, and and uh, you know, you, you leave in your junior year. You know, there's a player, Eric Detmers, uh, uh, Reed Detmers. Sorry, I know an Eric Detmers, but Reed just got called up by the uh, Los Angeles Angels on Sunday. And I remember at this COVID shortened season that we had, I'd ask him, hey, what are you doing for fun after, uh, you know, because all these guys are locked up in their hotel room. And he, he looked at me and said, I'm studying, man. I, I, I made a I made a pact with my parents that I'm going to graduate. So when, after I leave here, I'm cra I'm cracking the books open and I'm studying until I got to go to bed. And, and that's the kind of that's the kind of athlete you can be. Um, and, and getting the most out of your college experience and, and getting, uh, you know, getting your education under your belt, because that's really important for your future, if, you know, for the players that are listening here. Cool. All right. Well, um, here's to all the coaches out there that were decent, that made a good impact. And uh, I think it's a good podcast. And thanks for listening. And until next time, see you.